Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? I'm all right, thank you. Excellent. And it has been a remarkable week. Uh, possibly the biggest news to come out of the fund management industry ever. Uh, obviously, we're talking about the uh, the gating of Neil Woodford's flagship uh, LF Woodford Equity Income Fund. And we've de- uh, devoted a lot of coverage in the magazine uh, to that this week. Obviously, lots of people will be invested in this. Uh, you can't get your money out right now. Uh, there's lots of questions about what Neil Woodford was actually doing with this fund, the implications for some of the distributors, particularly Hargreaves Lounsdown, which I think you've got some strong thoughts about, Phil. And more to the point, some, some very sort of uh, big existential questions about the, the future of active management that, that have emerged uh, as a result of this. What's actually happened might be the, the thing to start with. Phil, talk us through it. Well, it seems that um, a big investor apparently last Friday, rumoured to be, or Kent County Council, asked to cash in its large holding of the of the Woodford Equity Income Fund. And Woodford Equity Income Fund turned around and said, sorry, you can't do that because we've got too much invested in stuff that we can't turn into cash or illiquid investments as they're known in the trade and therefore we're going to have to stop everybody cashing in their chips and try and sort it out so that we can give you your money back and that's essentially what's happened in a nutshell so the fund has been effectively frozen so if you want to get your money back you can't get your money back and no one knows when it's going to reopen again because it seems like it's such a mess and there's so many, uh, you know, a decent chunk of the funds invested in stuff that you can't turn into cash very quickly or at a, or a price that makes sense um, that the whole thing has now become a big mess. And big supporters of, of this fund and of the fund manager um, eventually withdrawing their support. So it looks like this thing is imploding rapidly. I mean, so, so, so I guess people who have money which is currently stuck in this fund will be worrying that they're not going to get anything back. That's unlikely. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't say they would get nothing, but they don't know what they're going to get back. I think one of the things that obviously has been opened up by this, one of the many things that's been opened up as, if you are a a shorter of stocks, you can take a look at what this fund owns. You know it's some of it's going to have to be sold, and you can just short it. So, and, and, and there was talk. There was talk that people were actively shorting against this fund's positions over the last few days. Yeah, I, I can imagine actually some of that, that shorting has been taking place for a while because I mean, yeah. there, there are a number of uh, stocks within this this fund that, that certainly we've looked at in, in recent weeks and thought. We don't really like the look of that. So we had big stakes in things like Purple Bricks. Yeah. For example, big stakes in things like Kia, which had a massive profit warning this week. We, we actually suggested selling the shares a couple of weeks ago. They're down 40% this week. Yeah. And, and as, as far as I'm aware, that the, uh, the Woodford Equity Income Fund still had a fairly substantial stake in that. You mentioned about illiquid things that he can't sell quickly. Unquoted as well. Indeed. So I'm looking at the top 10 holdings here. Some of them I don't even recognise. Uh, there's a company which is the fifth largest hold- holding called Theravents Biopharma, the sixth largest holding, Benevolent AI. These do not sound like income stocks. Some, this is not what I look at and think this is what an income fund looks like. Yeah, what was he doing? To- totally agree. What was he doing, though? I don't, I don't get the strategy. Well, no, and I, and I think a lot of commentators have had this concern for, for a while. 
Including ourselves, I, I hasten to add. I mean, we, you know, we, we, we have been supporters of Woodford over the years because he has delivered for investors. Um, but, a, but about a month ago, we actually published a sort of a ball bear piece looking at, you know, both sides of the debate. The, the, the article was titled, Should You Sell Woodford? And, yeah. and, our, and our former deputy personal finance editor, Taha, said yes. And, and, and this was one of the reasons. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously, times like this, there's, there's a lot of hindsight that comes in. But I think, to be fair, a lot of people call this out before it's unraveled. I think one of the things that's been the downfall of of, of this fund and, and the approach is that Neil Woodford, who built his reputation by buying blue chip dividend paying companies, which were which were decent businesses with rising dividend payouts, has actually changed his approach. You know, he's moved away from that kind of company into speculative, finger in the air type businesses, which are very difficult to value. No one really knows whether they're going to be a success or not. So, so, I mean, he has another fund called Patient Capital, yeah, which is where you would think this sort of stuff would sit yeah. more comfortably. I mean, what Purple Bricks, I mean, what's, is Purple Bricks an income fund? You know, it's... Well, yeah, but I, I mean, I'm even thinking more about the sort of sort of quite uh, early stage yeah, it's not uh, discovery stuff. This, yes, Patient Capital, get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, there's massive overlap between the two funds and this I don't get. Yeah, and I think the more important point on this is that, and this is something which is um, going to become an escalating issue, is that what on earth is an open-ended investment company? doing owning significant chunks of illiquid assets this is this is something that is dangerous has been proven to be dangerous um there's two instances where this has flared up one was the financial crisis when we had commercial property funds in open-ended funds and for those of you who are not aware of this 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 term it means an open-ended fund is means that a company can issue new units um, and also you can you can ask to redeem your units. So it's it's very much a two-way process. Now, the last thing you want to be doing when you're running an open-ended fund is giving the people, giving the, the, the unit holders or the fund holders the opportunity to ask for their money back and you're holding a significant chunk of the fund in investments where it's actually very difficult to raise the money to pay them. So, so for a big UK equity fund where, you know, it's, it's FTSE 100 companies which have, you know, massive volumes traded every day, this is fine because if you, people want to redeem, you can just sell those shares on the market, liquidate uh, the position, pay the money back. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, like me, it's like me having a stake in my house, you know, and, and have, mar- marketing that as an open-ended fund and someone comes to ask for my money back, but I can't, I can't sell it until I can find a buyer for it. And I yeah. can be waiting a long time for this. And obviously the investor doesn't know what price I'm going to get to turn it into cash. I mean, I don't, yeah, I, I can't tell what any of these companies are really worth. I mean, what, why has he done this? I mean, is this just, is this just, is this a view? I don't even, first of all, I don't understand how this is a strategy that creates income. I, Second, I, secondly, I don't really get why if you're running an income fund and a patient capital fund, you need them to overlap so much. Yeah, I think you've answered your own question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, you know, you, you mentioned that he, you know, he his his traditional approach was to buy lots of blue chip yeah. companies. Does this does does the fact that he's changed tack actually tie into what we've been talking about in recent weeks about the difficulty in finding these reliable dividend payers, and in fact that these blue chips that he may have once bought for their income and the reliability of their income are not quite so reliable anymore? Absolutely. If you look at what you know, what he he did did buy a lot of in in the heyday and do very well out of 
tobacco companies, utility companies and banks. So he's had to change course in many respects. He's had to change course. And and let's be fair about this. There is a decent chunk of this equity income fund which does contain these type of investments. It would be wrong to label this as, you know, a company that is stuffed full of illiquid, unquoted companies because there are rules that are set down which say that you can't have more than 10% in in that fund. But it's it's those rules that have partly been the cause of his problems. Yes. So so because because what he's bought hasn't delivered. So so what he's bought hasn't delivered uh, and also as, what, what, as redemption requests have come in yeah. he's had to find the money from somewhere and he's had to sell the the listed pro- pro- proportion of his portfolio. Yes. Been left with the unquoted that he can't sell quickly and therefore the proportion of them rises. So he's had to put all sorts of uh, absolutely what have been described as sleights of hand to to keep within the rules. Yeah, absolutely. And just to go back to to answer your question about you know, something that you and I have been talking for over the last few weeks as a theme is that, you know, equity income in the UK is not really a good place to be because there is a quality deficit in a lot of these in these income paying shares. A lot of these income paying shares have high yields because they are deemed to be not very good businesses. They have risky dividends, dividends that don't grow that much. Uncovered dividends. Yeah, and also cyclical dividends. Massive uh, capex requirements yeah, coming up. Yeah. So you know you look at the likes of I, I don't know I've not looked but you know things like BT, Vodafone, utility which, uh, which cut its dividend. Yeah, utility companies. House builders are, are some of the biggest yielders now but well actually he has uh his top holding uh, looking at the fact sheet I have from the end of April was Barrett Development. Yeah. So these these are companies that are riding the wave of profitability and giving a lot of it back to shareholders but how long will that last? Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's um, so there's there's a there's a big issue that not only faces this fund but equity income in general. I mean, you mentioned in your Alpha report that that you you know you don't think it's it's fair to 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 be giving Neil Woodford a kicking. We we do actually seems we've got into the territory of giving Neil Woodford a kicking. I know you like to stay positive and and uh, objective on these things, but um, I don't, no no we're not giving not give, we're giving the process a kicking. <laughs> No, but but one of the things but how you, you know a lot of people say, well, you can't separate the process from the individual. I, I get that. But one of the things you say though in his defence is that he's a conviction investor. Yeah. So his conviction appears to be he wants to invest in the next wave of technology. Yeah. Fine, I get that. And actually, you know, if that worked uh, over, oh, it would be a hero. Created enormous dividends. Oh, if if, if this had, and this is what you know, there's a lot of people, particularly on social media, who will. You know, kick the boot in. I I can get genuine anger amongst fund holders here, who have entrusted their money, their savings, and they've been let down. So I, so I totally get this, but I think I'm not trying to stick up for him. What? But what I will say is this: is that he has been a very prominent fund manager that has, on more than one occasion dared to go against the crowd. He did it 20 years ago. Well, well, that's the other point I was going to make about the idea of him being a conviction investor, is that his big conviction right now is that UK shares are too cheap. Yeah, and I think the problem is with this, this taking this approach, 20 years ago, dot-com boom, and you saw a huge sell-off in very good companies that just got their valuations trashed because fund managers looking to keep their jobs had to be seen to, to own overvalued tech stocks and media stocks and telecom stocks. We've moved on 20 years now, and actually a lot of these big blue-chip dividend stocks, as we've just touched on, actually are not great companies. 
Um, they actually may not be substantially undervalued. They are paying out a large proportion of their profits as income. But actually, if you were to do a fundamental analysis of their future prospects, there's not many that thinking that these companies are are able to grow. And whatever style of investing you're looking at, you basically make money from owning shares by participating in growth. Yeah. So, so the idea that the UK is undervalued, I mean, we've discussed this, you've, you've mentioned this, I think I actually quoted you on our seven days page, with yeah. your view that, you know, some shares are often cheap for a reason. Yeah, I don't think, uh, I don't think the, the market is cheap. I think, I think there's just a lot of inferior companies making up the value of the index and that's why it likes cheap. It's like a cheap bottle of wine in the supermarket. You know, you, you might be enticed to buy it and you can have a glass of it and then pour the rest down the sink. Yeah, absolutely. There, there is another implication to all this, as I alluded to earlier, which is the way that this fund has been distributed. And one of the big sufferers this week uh, from the fallout of, 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 of this, uh, this, this fund gating is Hargreaves Lansdowne. There is, there is what I guess some people, and I, and I think you're among them, Phil, would dis- say it's a bit of a cosy relationship between funds like Woodford Equity Income and distributors like Hargreaves Lansdowne, who have earned a lot of money out of this fund. I would go further than that. I would say that what this event has highlighted in very clear terms is a lot of what is wrong with the money management business in this country. And it is to do with the fund structure of open-ended funds, what used to be called unit trusts, and the distribution of them. And the fact that both the fund manager and the distributor are getting paid not for doing well, or not necessarily for doing well, but just for being big, just for having sufficient scale. And it's just essentially because what you have, you have large pools of money being managed by either a fund manager or a platform and you apply a percentage, even a small fraction of a percent to that, and it adds up to a lot of money. So, so I mean, the fee on Woodford through... 0.75. Uh, 0.75, but then you could buy that at a discounted rate through Hargreaves. Yeah, so what? So what's happened here, and I think this is very serious for Hargreaves Lansdowne, and you know, I make no bones of the fact, and this is not just for Hargreaves Lansdowne, I think that the charging of platform fees on open-ended funds is just wrong. It discriminates against investors who choose to hold their money that way compared to investors who own shares, investment trusts and ETFs who pay fixed, very low fees. Whereas whereas what's on open-ended funds, we have this percentage of value um, charging method. And this is, this is um, something that acts against the long-term interests of investors, in my opinion, but makes fund managers and platform distributors very rich. And I think what's what's become apparent here is that there is a conflict of interest here to pursue scale for scale's sake because it makes a lot of money. And you know, Hargreaves, Hargreaves, over half Hargreaves' assets are in in funds, and it has a charging structure of zero point four five percent for holdings between zero and 250,000, and then it goes down a bit. And I'm not just singling out Hargreaves here. Hargreaves is the is, is here because of the specific issue. This is an issue for the vast majority, with a few exceptions, 
of the platform industry. And we had a situation a few years ago where Trail Commission was banned. So this is a commission that was paid by a fund to an advisor who'd advised someone to buy a particular fund and the trail, the trail commission was paid throughout the end customer's ownership of that fund. Yeah, so let's just give it, make for our listeners, just to simplify this for listeners, what used to happen is that when you bought a managed fund, the typical fee was about 1.5%. The fund manager used to keep half of that, 0.75. The platform provider used to get about 0.25. And then a financial advisor used to get about 0.5. Now, that 0.5 was outlawed. And also like the platform fees payable from the fund manager to the platform, that was scrapped as well. So what happens now is, is that the fund manager still actually pockets pockets as much as they were pocketing before the, before the regulations changed. And then what's happened is that a lot of the platform providers, instead of actually allowing people in funds to pay a minimal custodian fee, which is what is all that's needed, have slapped on a percentage of value platform fee, which makes them a lot of money if you've got a lot of customers with a lot of savings. I mean, there is another angle to the way that Hargreaves was working with Woodford, and this is to do with the uh, the discounted price that we mentioned yes. earlier. And this this has implications too. There is something to be learned from this too. Well, I think Hargreaves got a lot of questions to answer on this now, and this is not the first time that you know their their sort of fund selection process has come under scrutiny. So when you say fund selection, we're so, talking so about the... This is the Wealth 50. It used to be called the Wealth 150, but they've narrowed it down to 50 funds. So these are the 50 funds that Hargreaves Landers say, these are great, this is where you should put your money. And because we're Hargreaves Lands down, we can get you a discount on this, on, on most of the funds. And obviously, people who are aware of this, is that there's a bit of a public spat between Terry Smith and Hargreaves Lansdowne. Terry Smith, who runs Fundsmith. Smith, Probably, or arguably, one of the best managed funds that actually has made a lot of money for people, and it's not been on the Hargreaves list. And they've been arguing, and the real reason, they've been arguing why that hasn't on the list, and Hargreaves Lansdowne says, oh, well, it's not proven in a, you know, in a bear market. You could argue that... Well, nor is Neil Woodford's fund. Well, exactly. And, and, <laughs> and others. And the real reason is, is that Terry Smith won't give Hargreave Lansdowne customers a discount. But clearly what's happened here, and this, this, is, this is what people will look at, and, is, and they, they will quite rightly ask the question, and I think Hargreaves is, is in a bit of a difficult position on this. It's like saying, how do you get on this Wealth 50 list? Is it because you're a good fund or is it because I can get a discount? Because if I can get a discount, or if I'm Hargreaves and I can get a discount and I can put a lot of people into, into your fund, either fund, fund manager will love that. They'll take it because they're a scale business as well. So they get more money under management. And even if they only, only have to charge 0.5 on that rather than 0.75, it still adds up to a lot of money. For Hargreaves, it's even better. Because if it's less than 250,000, they're getting 0.45 on that. So it's a brilliant way for them to channel loads of savings into their biggest revenue generator, which is platform fees on managed funds. And this, this list now is going to come under a lot of scrutiny because what, it, what is clear is that this Woodford fund 
was still on that recommended list until Monday this week when it got pulled. And we we knew that there were problems coming, we knew, coming down the road. You know, it was basically obvious. There, like, there were some very odd transactions. Some of the unlisted have been turned into listed vehicles yeah. on, a, on, a, in a, on a tiny exchange in yeah. Guernsey. Yeah. There were asset swaps between the patient capital trust. It, it, it was not looking good. This was, a, this was a fund on the back foot. Yeah. And it's like, this, this, is nothing, this has been going on for a long time now. And, you know, I, I've got nothing wrong with, you know, Hargreaves or any other platform provider, you know, having its list. But, you know, they, they are going to come under a lot of scrutiny now. And you can see that their share price is off by 20, 25%. What, what are people actually worried about, though? I mean, what, what are investors worried about? I think, what is the market worried about? I think the investors are, I mean, in terms of Hargreaves Lansdowne. Yeah, why, I mean, why, right? why has the share price come off? Because so I think that they, they think that they are going to lose business because the, credit, the credibility of this list has been blown to smithereens. But what, are people going to go, are customers going to go elsewhere? Maybe, maybe. Don't, don't, those, don't those other brokerages have the same issues? I mean, Yes, they do. And I think, you know, I think there is an issue industry-wide, actually, about various sources that private investors can tap into for fund recommendations. Mm. Because you have instances where companies clearly benefit from recommending funds that can, that can bring in a lot of money. And, you know, you, you have to ask the question whether this creates a conflict of interest. There's so, there's so many issues that, that have come from this in terms of the fees that are being charged. You know, should Woodford shareholders or fund holders be paying a fee if they can't, can't um, get their money back? Well, Hargreaves has waived the fees now. And Hargreaves, I think it's urging uh, Woodford but, to do the same. Well, yeah. And that's good, you know, good on Hargreaves for doing that because I think that's the right thing to do. But I think this whole issue of how private investors are paying to own managed funds is something that needs to escalate because there are a few few funds that do a very good job. There are a lot of funds out there that are not doing a job. People are paying very high fees for it relative to trackers that can be bought for next to nothing. And they're having to pay a platform fee on top. Whereas if they own an exchange-traded fund, shares outright, investment trusts, they are paying nominal fixed capped fees. Why do you think that such a large chunk of Hargreaves customers holdings is in open-ended funds, unit trusts, rather than these, these much more cost-effective? Because things? historically, that's where it's come from. That's how Hargreaves has made its money over the years by distributing funds. Firstly, because they were incentivized to do so through trail commission. This is all platforms. It's not Hargreaves. You know, Hargreaves made you know, made a lot of money from from trail commission, they, as they, did as did others. Unit trust they, they seem simple as well in a way that, that that there are certain complexities to owning shares and investment trusts in terms of how you choose them and 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 things like premiums and discounts, which I know people were well, confused that's, about. That's not, that's not an issue for open ended funds, but yeah, for investment, you know, pre- there are no premiums or discounts. But yeah, I know what you're saying. It, people, it's, it's, people are more comfortable owning something simple like it, like a, a unit. They, they, exactly. They have been. The, the term is they are collective investments where you pool your savings with other people's mm. savings and you invest in a broad basket of shares, and therefore you minimise your you know your risk of instead of holding your own individual shares, and if one of them blows up, you're in trouble. But if you own a basket. 
they are less risky and therefore they are the good, sensible, lower risk way of saving for the future. And that's fine. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that message. I think that message is broadly true. But there's no doubt that there's been a, a large chunk of money that has accrued to the industry through the charging regime. I guess the other observation that people have made about the, the whole Woodford situation is, you know, this was the, the star of the, the UK fund management industry. But there are many critics of active management who would say, yeah, but, you know, so what? It's just a marketing tool. Active management performance cannot persist. You might as well go straight into ETFs. And I guess, as I ask in my editorial, you know, does, does this ask us a question of some, some of the other star fund managers? Yeah. You know, have we reached the point where this what, could but, be the tipping point towards, that sends people towards passive, but even what, more aggressive? But what, why do you think star, star investment managers exist in the first place? They are there to sell funds. Mm. They are there to bring in money. But they must be good at what they do. Yes. They, they, this, but this is the whole issue of, of the, the conflict and the problems with open-ended funds. You get a fund that performs well. And you start marketing its its past performance, and you get more and more people to pour their money into it, which means more money under management, more fee income, and lots of income for the fund manager, and you know makes fund managers and fund management companies very rich. Mm. The history tells us is that very few active fund managers can go on a sustained, long term run of beating the market and that various phases or various um, types of investing approach will move in and out of fashion yeah it's it's very difficult but this is how this is how the market the market works they, the chief criticism of active fund managers particularly with open-ended funds is that they are asset gatherers they are money gatherers because they have a certain amount of fixed costs the more money and the more fee income that you get on that fixed cost, the more profits that you make. And you can make serious, serious amounts of money in this business. Could be a tipping point. This whole episode could be a tipping point. You would hope that it has some effect on, on I, the industry and, and the way it's treating retail customers. Yeah, I, I'm very, very disappointed um, in what's going on in, in fund Because it seems to me that there's still a lot of funds out there that are charging exactly the same fees that they were years ago. There are some good examples, though, of managers who are using the benefits of scale to cut the prices to investors. Scottish Mortgage. Scottish Mortgage. Scottish Absolutely. Mortgage Trust, which is an investment trust and is a closed-end fund. Now, Scottish Mortgage Trust is a great example of how to invest with a combination of listed and unlisted in that you have a closed-end fund. So you cannot ask for your money back. You have to sell the shares. And the great thing, I, I'm a great fan of closed-end investing because I think that's how it should be because I think it's better for all parties involved. It gives the manager a permanent sense, a permanent source of money to work with. You know, once it's in, they, it can't be taken away from them unless they lose it all on the market. And it allows them to take a long-term view. And it allows them to move. You can have unlisted stuff. Oh, Scott, I mean, I, I had a look at Scottish Mortgage's uh, annual report yesterday just to see what it did hold. And I mean, there were some pretty chunky 
unlisted, even at the top end of of that that fund, you know, in terms yeah. of its, its holding list. And the biggest the biggest holding I think is Amazon, which is about ten percent. Yeah, but yeah, there are a lot of a it, lot of very speculative companies down the bottom. Yeah, but it's gone about it in the right way. It's gone about it with a structure that doesn't pose these risks of redemptions that we're now seeing through through Neil Woodford's fund. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I also was struck by the fact, you know, there, there are unquoted and there are unquoted. Yeah. And I, and I looked at Scottish Mortgage and thought, you know, these are big, these aren't just unquoted companies. These are, perhaps you could describe them as unicorns. Now, I'm slightly wary of, of that. Yeah, how you, val- how you value them, in, I've in, no in, idea. Indeed. But, but they, are, they are substantial companies. They have built something huge. Yeah. Uh, yeah one of their biggest holdings is something called Ant Financial, which is it's essentially the, uh, the, the PayPal of, of, uh, of China, yeah. spun out of Alibaba. So, so these are big unquoted. I look at Woodford's portfolio. These are highly, highly speculative, smaller unquoted. Yeah, there is a big difference. There is, but you know, going back to what you just said, let's let's hope that this is a wake up call, and that we we get some change here, and we change the way that funds can invest to to lower these risks. And um, I think we still need to get the cost of investing down for particularly for private investors. Couldn't agree more. I mean, talking of, talking of uh, fund management, Phil, is ever, ever something you've, uh, you've uh, fancied having a crack at? I mean, no. looking, at, looking at the portfolio returns from the Phil Oakley Fantasy SIP. Yeah. Perhaps you should. No, I can't think of, <laughs> I can't think of anything worse. You're topping the list years it, today. It's, look, there's a big difference from me, you know, running a portfolio from my, from my home office to taking the huge responsibility and stresses of looking after somebody's somebody else's money which is a tremendous responsibility and is one one that is not to be taken on unlikely i would hope that the message that i would like to get across to to the listeners and to the readers of our magazine is that you can do a lot of good things yourself the tools are out there a lot of it comes down to your own temperament but if you are prepared to sit and read and listen and search out things and just keep doing that, then there's no reason why you can't be a good manager of your own portfolio. And you don't have to go all in for it. You can have part of your portfolio in, I don't know, an index tracking fund. And then you can sort of corner that off and then try a few few individual shares. Or pick some, mass, or pick some active managers who, who cover bits of the market that you couldn't hope to, to learn about. Absolutely, yeah. No, I, th- I think that's an important lesson no, I've that got I take that. from this. I think, I think that, you know, this, there will be lots of discussion about this is why active management is awful. It's too expensive and star managers fade. Uh, I think but actually, I, th- I think the, ban- the debate should be much more nuanced. There are, there are the, tool- the right tools for the right job at the right time, and you use them in- as a mix. And there are, you know, let's, let's be fair. There are, it's very easy to bash active management. We've just had a good bash of it ourselves in, in specific examples. But there are some managers out there who are doing a good job and they deserve a lot of credit for what they're doing. What I would like to see is I would like to see the managers that are doing a good job and are taking in a lot of money, passing on the benefits of scale back to some of maybe the longer serving, longer holding investors by giving them a bit of a cheaper fee. But that seems to be falling on deaf ears for most of the industry. Well, we can only hope. I mean, you, you talked about how, how uh, you know, how difficult or the huge responsibility of, 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 of running other people's money. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, I completely agree. 
You know, and, and actually, it reminded me of something you said in in your uh, alpha piece about AO World, which uh, had an update this week. Yeah, uh, I think you said you know you have immense admiration for anyone who starts and run a, runs a business. It's a very hard thing to do, and even harder to be successful. So we do sit here and we bash companies. Yeah, but and, and AO World is one of them actually. Yeah, we do. <laughs> so I we guess do. that's why you say this. We do, but so. again, we I, I like to try and qualify it as you know people who are listening to us and reading us. They're, they're investors. They want to know whether a company is a good investment. Mm. They look at us to give an opinion. Now, we, they may not agree with our opinion, but we try and give an opinion that is based on a consideration of the facts. Now, unfortunately, there are, you know, there are businesses out there that just struggle. You know, they're in very competitive markets. It's not a function of bad management. You can have incredibly good managers of businesses in very tough industries, and they will not turn it into a golden goose. Yeah, uh, you know, well, and AOL well being yeah, the uh, example. Yeah, AOL well, goods is, is, yeah. is cutthroat, it's low a, margin. It's a commoditized, low-margin business, and there is very little competitive advantage in this apart from scale. Most of them price match each other. and you know, Either you're the lowest cost operator in this, and you can offer for um, customers lower prices through scale, Buying power, which AO World cannot, um, but they're trying, and they're trying through international. Yeah, but, there are but that lo- is a very difficult thing. But to But they're get a it. long way from doing that. Yeah, and it just you know it's a very tough, tough business to crack. Absolutely. Should we make this a, t- a tradition and end the podcast on a high note? I think we should. Yeah. Uh, the high note this week uh, being Auto Trader. Yeah. Which is a business you like a great deal. Um, talk, talk us through why you like it. Well, I'll caveat it because. One of the things, one of the things that keeps coming up in my mind about these businesses that are highly, highly profitable. So, Auto Traders making margins of nearly seventy percent. Hargreaves Lansdowne's making mid sixties. Right Move making seventy five, something like that. They look from the numbers, you know, a wonderful businesses, but. One of the things that I think about more and more now is, is are they wonderful businesses because they give their customers wonderful products and services at a good price, or are they just charging their customers too much because they have such a deeply entrenched and dominant competitive position? And Autotrader, I mean, Autotrader here is a great example. It's like very much like, it reminds me very much like Right Move. In that it is a essentially it started off as a magazine, but it's now essentially become a portal for car, you know, the retail car business, and the vast majority of its customers are car dealerships. So, 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 replace the car dealer for the estate agent, and, yeah, and, and you've essentially got the same yeah. thing. So you've got like an IT platform on it, which doesn't require a lot of costs. You load it up with a lot of revenue, and each you know once you've got to break even, it's a bit like fund management. But you know, you get once you get to sort of break even, each incremental pound of revenue is dropping straight to profit. So the bigger you get, the margins just get bigger and bigger. See, the thing I would say about something like Auto Trader is that there are lots of car dealers out there. They're, they're all generally kind of smallish. It's a very fragmented industry. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they, you know, it's it's a kind of volume game. There's a lot of a lot of volume going through it. Um, and there is competition out there. There is nothing to stop someone else going out there and setting up. Well, Google or Facebook have tried it. But they, I mean, there are loads of little sites. But yeah. uh, what what I think it's done, this company's done really well, is it's transitioned from you know a magazine that you'd pick up in the newsagent to buy a used car, 
and has positioned itself as an online digital business that is moving more and more to serving car retailers, so sellers of new and used cars. And 80% of the motor dealerships in this country advertise on Autotrader. Mm. But they, you know, that's the network effect yeah, in action. I mean, it's they are five. If you look at you know, they got forty nine million website visits last year. They are in terms of getting eyeballs looking at their site. They are f- nearly five times bigger than their nearest competitor. They're getting about three quarters of the the eyeballs of the of the car market. But they, what what they're doing is that they are making themselves more helpful to their customers. There's been a big initiative on new cars and also things like car finance. And they are, they are essentially becoming the go to, a go-to place for, for not only for retailers to advertise what they, what they offer, not just in terms of cars, but finance and that kind of thing, but also just for, just for knowledge for consumers. And now there are lots of car websites out there. You know, lots of places you can go out and find out about cars. The internet's full of them, but there are not a lot of places where you advertise your car. We, we bought a car through through Auto Trader, yeah. And what, what what we found useful was that there are a lot of consumer uh, sort of decision support tools on there. Yeah, so, you know, it helps you organise the the kind of the uh, the RSC check. It, it it gives you all the sort of uh, you know you can the, check the, the ownership, history out the, the history, kind of thing, the, yeah. the the uh, the the, the, the uh, HPI history, the uh, you know the, the finance, which history. they charge a fee for. Well, I know they do, but <laughs> but it's better better to know it than not. Absolutely, know it. and it and it's selling. You know, it's selling eyeballs. It's selling peace of mind. It's selling knowledge. And this has allowed it to charge or get more revenue per dealer forecourt. Now, don't get me wrong. As with Right Move, you know, you go you go onto like estate agents forums on the internet, and you will find grumpy, very grumpy estate agents who who say that who feel that Right Move are fleecing them in terms of the charge per office. And you'll have the same with this company as well. It's thinking. They've got us by the proverbials, and um, they're just jacking their fees up every year. And I don't know, I'm not a car dealer. I don't know whether that's true or not, but what I will say in the company's defense is that they seem to be able to demonstrate that they are offering more to their customer base. And it's producing fantastic results. This is a company that is just unbelievable. it's not unbelievable because it's there. It's it's phenomenally profitable. Mm. You know, it's pretty pretty similar profits to Hargreaves and to Right Move, and it's the cheapest of the three, based on forward multiple. Forward multiple this morning when I looked at it was twenty six times. Not exactly, uh, not exactly bargain basement. Not exactly uh, bargain basing, But how much do you want? How much do you think you should pay for a business that produces stuff like this, returns like this, and is growing? I mean, it actually compare it to companies with much inferior fundamentals and this is relatively speaking cheap yeah i mean the thing that i guess people worried about with auto trader including ourselves and we 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 got this one wrong is that its relationship with the the underlying industry so you know the uk car industry has been weak uh, and and you know the uk housing market especially the second hand housing market hasn't exactly been flying how how do these companies protect themselves from it yeah. i mean it, it, there seems to be some kind of you know, some kind of disconnect between how well Auto Trader or Right Move are doing and how well they're know, doing better than the underlying better industry. than the underlying market. Yeah, and I think the other thing is that 
is that you know right move. You know, if you look at if you look at one of the things that I always encourage people to look at is recession resilience. You know, how does this company perform when the when the market goes bad? Now, right move actually held up reasonably well, but it was a lot smaller business. Mm. You know, when the car market goes through the floor, you know, right uh, auto trader is, you know, it's going to see drops, probably big drops in advertising revenue, and it's going to get dealers saying, look, I can't pay this fee. And that's because they don't want to or they just go out of business. Yeah. But I think, and that's more that's more of the, the sort of independent trader rather than, you know, the lookers of this world. Mm. And so that's that is the the risk with this with this com- with this company. The the key issue really is, you know, I just looked at it briefly this morning, but it's the one that you would do the thing the issue that you would look at if you were thinking of buying this share is you would look very deeply into how integral this company is and how important it is to its customers' business and business model. So in a downturn, if its customers wanted to stay in business, how how important is it for all sectors to be be part of helping them do so? But you could make the argument that in a recession, the last thing you want to do is take yourself off auto-trader. Precisely. So... The, the the thing that surprised me is that no one's come and tried to knock this out. Same with right move. I mean, right move's got on the market competing with it. Google Google tried to have a crack at the UK property market and got nowhere. Yeah, and Facebook's had a go, or is in the in the process of having a go. This looks a very very resilient business, and who knows how it will do in in, in the next downturn. Um, none of us none of us know that, but mm, um, we'll find out one day. Well. Yeah, but you know, hats off to this company. It's done. It's, uh, it's doing a good job for its investors. Excellent. Um, thank you, Phil. Lots to uh, lots to uh, mull over there. Yeah. Let me just talk you all through what else we've got in the magazine this week. I work from the back. Uh, we have um, the sector focus looking at supermarkets and, and what's going on there and how supermarkets, especially the major supermarkets, are competing against uh, some of the threats they face from from the top and bottom ends of the market. Algae's looking at contrarian investing. Probably a bit of a dirty subject this week, given uh, yeah. the contrari- what contrarian investing has done for uh, for Neil Woodford. Uh, lots of, lots of results. Uh, lots of uh, lots of tip updates. Uh, and lots of the news section, including a double page spread looking specifically at Neil Woodford, and then a page which is only partly devoted to Neil Woodford, but actually there's news on Provident and Keir, which were two big holdings of of his, which uh, neither of them are good news. Keir just looks like another construction company nightmare, doesn't it? it it's it's horrible. Another another I, I, it's another lesson of saying, look, do you really need to invest in these companies? Indeed, and actually, Phil, following up from your Alpha report last week, your views on First Group and its accounts. There was an email that came from one of its major shareholders, Coast Capital, very shortly after you sent that out. Yes, saying much the same thing. Yes. Uh, so there's a big spat going on there between between this investor and, and First Group, uh, and there's a there's an update there on that, although I suspect that one has uh, further to play out. Um, all the usual comment, Simon, the trader, Mr. Bearbles uh, updated his income portfolio, and of course, double page, treble page spread from Phil. Um, features this week uh, from uh, John Barron and our investment trust columnist, and the cover feature uh, is on strategic analysis, which I know is something, Phil, that you you think investors often forget about yeah. and focus too heavily on the numbers. So we've, we've run through some of the sort of basics of strategic uh, analysis here. Uh, that will hopefully sort of help you understand some of these market forces that affects the companies uh, that, that we talk about. And, and, and I know that you put them to, to the test, even if you don't 
even if you do it naturally without using these these models. Strategic analysis for investors. Get to grips with the market forces shaping companies. That's the cover feature. Pick it up in all good news agents, £4.99. Or get online and subscribe. Thank you, Phil. And thank you all for listening. See you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.